This week, our executive producer, Adam Gobesi, suggested we watch the 2014 movie United Passions, the story of <laughs> FIFA, which only made $9 in its opening weekend in Phoenix, Arizona. $9? Yeah, so only one person bought a ticket. Was it Adam? <laughs> it it could, could be. <laughs> but instead, we decided to watch the 1976 film, All the President's Men, instead. And welcome to another episode of Cinematic Respect. I'm Charlie Wallace, and I'm your first co-host. And I'm Jessica Clares, your second co-host. Jessica! So, there's a few pieces of news that I want to talk about. The really? first one is that actor Robert Redford has just finished filming his final movie, and uh, he's retiring from acting. So, really? as it turns out, uh, we're going to be doing a quick Robert Redford retrospective for our next two episodes. <laughs> You're right. I guess we are. I'm going to claim that's not coincidence whatsoever. But But additionally, uh, today's episode is about all the president's men. And speaking of all the president's men, two (laughs) gigantic news stories just dropped, I think, several hours ago. Just a few hours ago, yes. One is that uh, Michael Cohen, who was the uh, personal attorney to the current president, pleaded guilty to campaign finance violations and uh, illegal payments. And uh, the president knew about it. He said this in court as well. And the president directed him to make those payments. Additionally, at the same time, in a completely separate case, Paul Manafort, who was the uh, former campaign manager for Donald Trump, was convicted on eight charges of financial fraud as well. Before he's set to appear in court again in D.C. Yes. So that's eight of 18 18 mm-hmm. yes and then potentially more so um so very I'm, relevant yeah <laughs> suddenly more relevant than we initially decided that we we're going to record this episode <laughs> but the person who uh had actually not seen this movie before was uh taylor anderson welcome to the show taylor thanks for having me so yeah taylor our executive producer adam gabeski worked with you at msu years ago and recommended you as a guest I appreciate Adam's recommendation. Uh, He knows that I love movies and like to talk about movies because that is what we spent a lot of time doing when we weren't working at MSU. (laughs) Hopefully I fit right in. (laughs) And a a history major as well, it turns out. So as a history major, uh, you decided to pick something that actually was a true historical story. Uh, What made you decide to pick All the President's Men? Uh, I picked this because I was kind of disappointed in myself that I hadn't actually already seen it um, because I've heard from many people that it's a classic. Um, And, you know, of course, in the current political era we're in, uh, it seems to be more relevant than it was, say, 10, 15 years ago uh, and becoming more relevant every day, as you noted at the top of the show. So it was mostly just kind of a... Uh, inner shame that I hadn't seen it before, uh, <laughs> a desire to watch it, and uh, the fact that it had uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman and Redford was just a nice bonus because they're uh, two excellent actors. See, look, we don't even have to shame the guest. He did it for us, for us Charlie, <laughs> and this is so effortless. He might have done it without us. I but... know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just phoning this one in, guys. <laughs> All right, well, as, as our guest astutely pointed out, this movie stars Robert Redford and... Dustin Hoffman playing Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, respectively, um, who are two reporters that work for the Washington Post. And the movie details uh, how they have researched and and follow the uh, 1972 burglary of the Democratic Party headquarters at the Watergate complex um, and how they investigate that burglary and um, the money that funded it and basically unravel a presidency. With the help, of course, of a very fun named or unnamed source, um, (laughs) (laughs) nicknamed source, uh, Deep Throat, who was revealed in 2005 to be, um, at the time, the deputy director of the FBI, Mark Felt. So, Taylor, I'm sure you actually knew that this was based on a book and that um, it was about the investigation from The Washington Post into Watergate. But what did you expect, I guess, from the movie in general? I did know it was about a book. Uh, I hadn't read the book, as I said. I'm planning to now. Um, what to expect, uh, simply because, you know, it's it's an older movie. Um, I guess I kind of, of, you know, expected a procedural, which is basically what it is. Um, but it was, it was 
much better in some ways than I expected it. I wasn't sure how they could portray the both intensity and exhilaration and the mind-numbing boredom that uh, historical research can uh, entail, but they managed to do a really good job. It's one of my favorite movies now, I think I can say after saying it. Oh, nice. Uh, I'd say I I can't really put a specific number in there because there's too many, but it's definitely up there now after, after watching it. So I think that's a good point. It's very close to the definition of a procedural film, right? There's so much grunt work and research and interviews and stuff that they have to do that it's kind of amazing that they managed to make such a compelling film out of it, right? Yeah, I I was actually surprised at how um, engaging it could be uh, when there was a significant period throughout the movie where there wasn't much dialogue, but it still kept you kind of locked in. Um, I think the score went a long way. There was some really good, really good background music and good scoring. I think that helped a lot. And um, obviously the cinematography, the shot selection um, was fantastic as well because it, it, it built tension even when you weren't expecting it to be a necessarily tense movie at times. Agreed. Yeah, definitely. So the subject of our two episode arc here, Robert Redford, is uh, by and large responsible for this entire film. Absolutely. He's he's the one who decided to go out and that this needed to be be created. And he actually started this process before the book was even finished. Correct. Yeah, he bought the rights in 1974 for $450,000 with the idea that he wanted to adapt it into a film um, afterwards. So he bought it in 74. The book was published prior to Nixon's resignation. Um, and then the movie came out in 76. So really quickly. And and I think that's, I think that's really impressive and probably um, influenced a lot of people in terms of people who saw it, I guess. I mean, but just being able to, if you think of things that have happened um, on in the political scene, not just even present day, but just in the last like two decades, and you think about having some kind of scandal unfold and you, you know, things that are reported in the news, um, either in print journalism or television, and you don't know exactly, you know, what details are true and all, and then and to have something come out <laughs> in a film where there's direct contribution by the people who wrote, you know, the original story and to have it kind of unfold right in front of you very, very quickly on the heels to really unpack that and have more people kind of know everything that went down. I also think it's kind of impressive that um, they were able to get the movie, given I'm sure the tense political climate afterwards. Um, Yeah. But I suppose since it it didn't really make Nixon look good, it probably, uh, probably wasn't as hard to convince people to produce at that point if it would have been you know glorifying him maybe a little different but i was reading an article that said that they were going to shoot at the library of congress and were getting a lot of pushback because they were like this didn't happen or like the library of congress had no part in this Mm -hmm. investigation and carl bernstein being like but we were here (laughs) (laughs) but we did research i remember coming here and doing this So there was there there was some pushback, and I guess they wanted some uh, they wanted some shots maybe in the uh, press room, and weren't able to do that. They were initially told they were able to do that, and then yeah. Gerald Ford was like, "No." <laughs> I can see that though. That would I mean, especially right on the heels of him, you know, like pardoning and all. I mean, it's it's a sticky that's right. a sticky climate. Right so there, there, yeah, there were a lot of people who wanted to talk about it, and a lot of help they got from people in there, but there were there was. There was a little bit of uh, stuff they had to work through, too. But as Jessica, as you were saying, the Watergate break-in was in June of 1972. This book comes out in June of 1974. Yeah. And then Nixon resigns in August of 74. And then the movie comes out in 76. Yeah, all of the stuff was came very, very quickly. It's hard to kind of imagine that quick of a turnaround. Yeah. Um, but this entire time, I mean, Robert Redford, at this point, he was a huge movie star yeah obviously at this point we know like uh, what a huge devotee to film in general he is and but um he could have just coasted at that point if he wanted to he could have been in basically any film he wanted Mm -hmm. and just made a crap ton of money but this is what he wanted to do and he went out and made this happen with his own production company at the time and I think, you know, getting getting the involvement of Bob Woodward, Carl Bernstein, and even Ben Bradley, um, there was something I read that just said Ben Bradley um, wasn't in love with the idea of them shooting any scenes, like in the actual post offices and some of these different things, but he figured, you know, the story's going to be told, and I'd rather be able to contribute to the 
factual accuracy than oppose it and, you know, have things that I just, you know, I don't agree with, whatever. So, you know, getting that cooperation, like you said, Robert Redford, it's to his credit that the story is being told as accurately as it as it was. Yeah, I, I thought I read that Redford was was pretty critical about the first draft of the movie after it was written. Mm-hmm. Too, oh, yeah. And that he, he had them go back and redo it. So it seems like, um, you know, attention to detail and accuracy was a, a big deal for him as well. Yeah. So it's not just that he wanted to do it. It's that he wanted to do it right. And it seems like he achieved that goal. Yeah, I read something that even um, just like they they ordered or I don't know what the right word is <laughs> they requested from the post um, a, as as many papers like once they were done with stuff like stuff that normally sits on desks so like all these papers and files and manila envelopes and like all of these things that they got like boxes upon boxes upon boxes of this just to set around what would be garbage what would be garbage <laughs> um, to have in, in their apartments you know because you see Robert Redford's apartment several times and there's just stacks of papers and there's old phone books and there's you know all of these things that they basically got as many things from the actual post offices as they could to use to make sure that it was as accurate as possible and the one that cracked me up the most is that the phone number that he dials to get the press office the white house press office is the actual phone number for the press office <laughs> no like kidding. you could call that it goes to the white house i mean maybe they've changed it now but at the time that was the legit the number <laughs> i was like oh they didn't do a 555 nope that's the real deal so <laughs> i was surprised too how quick like in the story how quickly he was getting through to people simply by asking for them on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> like there wasn't much runaround is like, oh, can I talk to John Mitchell? Sure. I'll put you right through. <laughs> he's not busy. Yeah, I like <laughs> early on, he asked for someone and she's like, he's not in. Try this someone else's office. He's like, okay. He tries the other office. He calls and they say, oh, he's not in. He's getting ready to hang up. And they're like, oh, have you tried this third person? It's like, it's very, it's Helpful. very 70s. You know, yeah, yeah. that sort of thing wouldn't happen now he's not in all right bye click that's kind of how it would go today yeah, <laughs> yeah. who are yeah. you what do you want no. a lot of he's not in but he really is in stuff too. yeah <laughs> right yeah. a reporter no thanks but <laughs> yeah i think just showing truly how um how it started i really appreciated kind of where they picked it up and where where they took it uh, in terms of the movie because the the book covers longer than than the movie does so the movie only covers what like the first like seven months or mm-hmm. something like that of of the scandal um and it starts off with just simply the burglary which i thought was really it was pretty great like you don't start with the investigative journalism part you actually start with the incident itself and kind of seeing that and little fun fun fact is that the um night watchman frank wills who like sees the tape on the door that is him he's playing himself oh. <laughs> So they, for whatever reason, they actually had him in the film, which I thought was, I mean, it's kind of, it's a little bit of a little wink, kind of a fun little goofy thing to do, but I thought it was pretty cool. So Taylor, what did you think about starting off with the burglary and then shifting away from that for the rest of the movie? Yeah, it's just just to set the the scene of, of, you know, what exactly they're investigating, just in case people aren't sure. Uh, You make it very clear that this is what started it. Uh, sets the sets the tone for the movie that you know these people were breaking in. We don't know why. The rest of this movie is going to tell you why and how far it goes. Well, and I think too. I mean, obviously, I, I know a little bit more watching it, but just to see how pathetically stupidly planned it was. I mean, it was pretty low rent. I mean, you have a few guys in suits with their flashlights flashing around, clearly visible from outside the building, like, oh, there's something weird going on over there at the Watergate building. <laughs> it's just <laughs> obvious. Um, in the actual incident, like the tape over the door, over the lock, um, it was taped and the guard saw it and removed it. And he only got suspicious when he went back and the tape was there again. <laughs> and so just some of these like low rent things, like you can see that, okay, they had walkie talkies and they had some gloves or whatever. But when their spot, their guy across the way, like, you know, said, hey, someone's coming. They turned off the walkie talkie. And so now they don't have anybody who's giving them a heads up. And so they could have <laughs> left. There were just lots of little things that I think were indicative of how like sloppy it all was. Which it, I didn't remember that I'd seen this. This is maybe the third time I've watched this movie. Mm-hmm. And I this was the first time I noticed that someone at some point, I don't remember who, points out, yeah, these guys are a little bit dumber than you think that they are, right? <laughs> I wrote that quote down. It was from, uh, I think, Deep Throat said it. He said, forget the myths the media's created about the White House. The truth is, these are not very bright guys, and things just got out of hand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there several of the 
Several of the burglars also participated in the Bay of Pigs invasion. These are not bright people. <laughs> uh, it's one of the ones that remains applicable throughout, you know, the rest of history. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 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 So we go from the burglary to Robert Redford arriving at the courthouse, hounding an attorney basically five or six times. It gives you a really good introduction to his character of Bob The Woodward. tenacity, yeah. Yeah, that he doesn't let this go, even though the guy shuts him down multiple times. Yeah, I just, I really liked it that he just kind of like keeps showing up, like you said, just over his shoulder. So I know you're not saying anything more. I just, I just, I have to ask this, you know, just kind of <laughs> just pushing and pushing. And and if you think about it, I mean, he took it from, okay, here's five guys who they're being accused of, um, I think it was like burglary two. And noticing, okay, well, they uh, were assigned public defenders, but now they don't need them because they have attorneys and it's a country club type, you know, in quotes here. So what does that mean? And why would they be getting that? And where's that money coming from? You don't see that for burglars. And And that they didn't call the attorneys. The attorneys just showed up. Yes. So who do you know that's just going to summon an attorney for you? Yeah. Yeah. I really liked how you start with little teeny tiny details and expanded that, you know, and, and, you know, hitting dead ends. And I liked the juxtaposition of him and Bernstein, um, where Bernstein's clearly a little bit more of a renegade. <laughs> yeah. And and Woodward's a little bit more by the book, which also gave it that buddy cop feel. <laughs> <laughs> Even though these are actual people and it's based on their actual personality traits and characteristics, it was kind of a good, a good mix. They're in the editor's office talking and, um, uh, Redford reads a quote, uh, you know, that none of these men had anything to do with breaking into the Democratic offices or whatever. And the editor goes, yeah, but that's what you expect them to say. And Redford just goes, yeah, the only thing is I didn't say anything about Watergate. They denied something before I asked them about it. And just, it, I don't know, it was one of those great lines that stuck with me because it's just the way he delivered it was excellent too. Just very matter of fact, like, yeah, that's a standard response to a question that wasn't asked. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's what keeps this movie going, too, I think, is that so much of the material could be dry. It seems almost at times like a presentation of facts, mm-hmm. but the way that those facts are delivered or so the acting or the cinematography or the juxtaposition of different scenes uh, just keeps things really fresh and interesting the whole time. I didn't feel bored, Mm-mm. surprisingly. Mm-hmm. You would, I, I mean, I would just reading a description of the movie, I would it would yeah. sound kind of boring to me. No, I, I, they did an incredible job of keeping you keeping you interested and feeling like, I don't know, feeling like you're part of the unraveling of the story somehow, mm-hmm. even just as a third party observer. Even, even though I knew what happened, I still felt like I was learning with the main characters as they went along. Like I have 50 years, you know, hindsight on it, but I still felt like I was learning as they uncovered the next lead. Like, oh, that's the connection. That's how it leads to hold them in or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just it's very well done, and I think a lot of it goes down to the chemistry between um, Redford and Hoffman. I don't know if another combination could have necessarily pulled it off. Um, but I think they were the perfect actors for the roles. Um, they really they really carried it because just with a different relationship, might not have been able to carry the uh, kind of the unspoken dialogue that they have at sometimes. Like if one of them's on the phone and the other one is is miming things to them or listening in, they just had a very good chemistry um, outside of just their spoken lines that I think really helps uh, the movie along. I had read that they actually memorized each other's lines too so that they could interrupt each other in character like and have that a better rapport back and forth in the frustration and when they kind of got in each other's faces a little bit and back, 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 that back and forth biting, that they did that on purpose to kind of get the timing down and make it feel more natural, which they is did a good job, ridiculous. So. <laughs> it's, I mean, that's a ridiculous level of commitment, but yeah. it yeah. it is palpable. It's not something that would surprise me with either of those actors, though. I feel like both of them are known as being deeply committed to the roles they take on. Yes. Yeah, no, it was it was very, very good. And there, I mean, uh, speaking since we are just talking about casting right now, I mean, obviously Robert Redford was his project, um, and he uh, once he decided to put himself as one of the two main characters, um, kind of balance out the ticket, so to speak. Um, you know, being able to go after and get Dustin Hoffman to play Carl Bernstein, um, and I know that even when they 
when they build it. I think they build one of them first for the film and one of them first in all of the um, advertising for the film. Like, just to try to keep it. It was ridiculous. Like, that. I've just, I mean, reading all these things, they really did try to keep it as equitable as possible. Um, and I know another big get was uh, for the casting of Ben Bradley that they decided to go with um, Jason Robards. Oh, yeah. He, uh, he did a great job. He was great. I loved him. So Ben Bradley was the executive editor of The Post at the time, and he's sort of omnipresent in the film. He's he's actually the counterbalance to them. Like mm-hmm. they're counterbalancing each other to some extent, but they have the tendency to maybe get a little ahead of themselves. Well, they're they're eager. Yes. I of mean, course. and and Ben Bradley, I mean, anyone who's in that role, but I think Ben Bradley during that time period in particular, you know, develops this reputation for you know, you want to put out a good product. Mm-hmm. And so you ha- you can't be too loose cannony. <laughs> you know, you got you to keep it a little bit, you know, so you can con- continue to put out, put out the, the paper. You want to make sure everything you're putting out is as accurate as possible. And so, you know, pushing them. You don't have it. Give me more. You don't have it. Um, and so he, you know, he needed that. But at the same time, I don't know that his seasoned reporters, the the people who were covering politics, you know, that those desks or whatever, I don't know that they would have necessarily thrown themselves into it like these guys did. But wasn't Ben Bradley also the editor of the Post when they released the Pentagon Papers? Yes. So maybe he'd already kind of gone around or two with the federal government. It was like, <laughs> let's yep. make sure we have it. Before we <laughs> exactly. Yes, he was. So, well, this is the first time we've seen this movie since I've watched The Post. So it's like, oh, yeah, I see how all this stuff is connecting yeah. now. Well, and knowing even just... to see that. Oh, it's very good. You should see it. Um, I don't <laughs> think, I, as a sidebar, this is a personal mini review, mm-hmm. but I don't think they captured the excitement, the intensity, as well as this film did by a long no, shot. No, no, I don't think so either. But, you know, it was a good airplane movie. Oh, <laughs> Let yeah, me yeah. put it that way. I watched on the plane and I was, I was, I was in it. The owner of the... Uh, the post Catherine Graham was played by Meryl Streep in that movie could have been in this movie and chose not to be. She said she didn't want her character to be involved in it whatsoever. So that's, I, I was kind of interested, like why now that I've seen the post, why isn't she brought up at all? It's because like, I guess she requested not to be in the movie. Hmm. Hmm. Just, I, you know, <laughs> side, I don't like talking about another movie while we're talking about a movie, but as a sidebar, <laughs> I think um, having seen the post, but kind of knowing that on the heels of the Pentagon papers and what a big, um, risk she took in even releasing those oh yeah um and kind of knowing a little bit more about her like you're saying uh taylor like you know kind of having just recently tangled with the federal government (laughs) and kind of going around again that it would be very menacing you know yeah you did it once and it panned out but that doesn't mean you know it's going to work again and so when people are making these threats like they're not idle they're not idle threats yeah yeah because it's still the sitting president (laughs) yeah right and the other side to that too that i thought was interesting was seeing the editors talking about what they were going to put in the paper any given day and like how much other news was going on at the time and they had to decide whether what woodward and bernstein actually had was front page news or not i mean obviously now we know it is yeah but at the time they've got you know hundreds of other stories that well, it's competing i mean vietnam against. is is still exactly. going on you still have all right. these things i mean there's an election going on yeah. there's you know so I thought that was a great scene where you got to see the rapport between all of those people and that, you know, they're actually trying to make the best decision for the paper. And it isn't obvious at first that this is yeah, anything that needs to be published at all. Yeah, uh, I'm not at all going to get on a soapbox, but I did want to point out that I think watching this movie this time around and watching it with a more critical eye, that there is a stunning lack of women oh, in this yes. film. <laughs> yes. and, yeah. um, and I think it's accurate. I'm not whatever mm-hmm. but i mean they're one female reporter who's like a co-worker that they clearly respect whatever the way she's telling the story is because she had you know one of these <laughs> one of the guys at her apartment late at night having drinks where he clearly wanted to score but you know he's got a wife and kids at home or yeah. whatever so even though she's one of their co-workers and one of their peers the only thing she was really good for was her personal life right which was shady so mm-hmm. like little bits but otherwise you're pretty much female free Jane Alexander played, I guess, the bookkeeper who actually reveals a lot of information to Dustin Hoffman towards the end of the film. And she had a pretty good screen presence. I mean, she was nominated for an Academy Award, did not win for just that one, like, eight minute scene. You're right. She does a very good job. I hadn't considered that. You're right. It's just, that's it. I was thinking about the newspaper when I was saying that. No, no, no. I mean, I think that scene, even more than the others, kind of made me 
realize exactly what you're saying. It's like, oh, you know, you're starting to get to something where you're actually giving women a role in this movie, but, you know, that's kind of what it's limited to. Yeah, and the rest of them are like, oh, well, you had a relationship with this man, and therefore that's why you're in it. And That's why you're helpful or interesting. <laughs> yeah, that happened twice, actually, yeah. The there was somebody else dated uh... somebody, and that, yeah. Even the bookkeeper, her role eventually involves being kind of manipulated by the two journalists to give them what they want. Yeah, so, that's true. Yeah, you know, which I mean, maybe accurate, maybe historically accurate, but still not the best portrayal. So, no, it's just it was just a little bit of a bummer. You know, it made me feel a little bit better about <laughs> about now. So, Taylor, how did you feel about their methods for actually getting the information that they wanted? For me, sometimes it bordered a little bit on um, maybe you shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> I yeah, I think. Um, uh, Hoffman's character Bernstein definitely was the one to push the envelope more mm-hmm. um, and kind of kind of cross into maybe you're going too far these people are obviously uncomfortable I think you're overstepping your bounds whereas Redford's character at least early on in the movie is a little more reserved a little more by the book um, yeah no there are definitely times where I was thinking ah, these guys are they're really badgering these people to get what they want but you know I suppose that was also probably the tactics of the time uh, I'm not sure how effective it could be in you know 2018 but in yeah the mid 70s um you know maybe it was more acceptable yeah it was it was jarring at first i think i think they're always i mean they're always polite but just like you said really really pushy and leaning on people far more um and i i completely agree with your analysis that yeah like woodward was a little bit more reserved while yeah. Bernstein really leaned into it until you do see a little bit of progression over the course of the film by the I feel like the the pinnacle um being when the last time he meets with Deep Throat and is like I'm sick mm-hmm. of this like I need you to tell me things like and just really kind of gets in his face and does get yeah <laughs> all the information That's true. He does. This it's like oh well you know if you would have done this at the beginning buddy you could have saved yeah. yourself a lot and I'm just kidding um oh. but you know just really <laughs> but I mean taking a few notes out of out of Bernstein's book a little bit uh, some of the, the uh, Bernstein Woodward inter- interchanges when they were interviewing people, it was almost uh, Sorkin esque a few times with yeah, their absolutely. Like, back and forth. Agreed. Like Proto Sorkin, yeah. <laughs> very, very much so. Um, and I think, you know, where they would plan out, okay, I'm going to say this and you you correct me with information that's wrong and then wait to see if they react. You know, the, the person there, yeah, yeah, take the bait trying to get the information and out yeah, of this them. The scenes of them planning that too. Like, this is how we're going to trick them into saying what we think that they know. <laughs> or the one that almost gets them in trouble where Bernstein says, if you confirm this, don't hang up in the next 10 seconds or something ridiculous <laughs> yes. like that. Like, what a mind game he's playing there. Well, and, I yeah. feel, and it's so silly because like, they it's wrong. Like they screw it up. Like, right. and that's the only reason Bradley <laughs> agrees to print it. Yeah. <laughs> but then they're right. I know, but they could have <laughs> been so, that, so screwed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it was, it was messy. Yeah. Is there anything more with, with cast at all? I'm just running oh, through my probably. head. probably. Um, before we leave casting. Deep Throat. So, yes. Hal, Hal Holbrook. Holbrook. I love him. <laughs> I adore him. Yeah, he does a great job. And so we get these scenes where they're meeting in uh, a parking garage, a very dimly lit parking garage. In Roslyn. What's just, that? In Roslyn, just outside of D.C. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, Hal Holbrook's just kind of... The idea is that he's only going to confirm things mm-hmm. that Redford already knows. Mm-hmm. So it's a sort of, you know... Which, I, at Coy. the time, I mean, I, I definitely understand. So I think, you know, once you kind of know the entire story and knowing that the White House at the time is using the FBI, the CIA, the IRS, <laughs> and various, you know, all these organizations to dig up dirt about on people, to harass and manipulate people to get what they want. And so if you're inside the FBI and a relatively, <laughs> well, I mean, he, he was the deputy director. That's, that's, that's not a, a spot that... You're going you're gonna to be overlooked mm-hmm. in that a certain piece of information he had were only going to come from a certain number of people. So, I mean, it's going to be easy to narrow it down. So I can see why he was being very, very cautious. And it worked. I mean, nobody knew who he was except for Woodward until he released his identity in 2005. Yeah. So yeah. good on him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the um, parking garage. uh they, I think they used the actual parking garage, if I yeah, remember correctly. Yeah, they tried to use a lot of the same places that things actually yeah. happened. The, the house where they talked to Jane Alexander is actually the house of the woman 
who did that interview. Oh, really? Yes, yeah, so they actually found the house, or they actually went to their her house and got permission to film the to scene. To film there. it. Okay. Yeah, so they used the parking garage, and uh, the parking garage has been there with some kind of a plaque or something on it, apparently. Up until, it was super depressing, I was reading this, up until last year. In 2017, oh. in 2017, it was torn down to build an apartment building. (laughs) (laughs) And allegedly, they're going to have, they're still going to have a plaque or something there to say like this was the site or something that, but it was like, I don't know, it made me laugh out loud. I'm like, oh, that's so lame. (laughs) (laughs) BC. Yeah, exactly. First historical parking garage. (laughs) Yeah, I know. How many historical parking garages have there ever been? (laughs) Probably had trouble with people going in to recreate the scene. (laughs) In the middle of the night. People in trench coats everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) On Halloween, it was a madhouse. Exactly. (laughs) So one of the ways that the movie grabs your attention is the multitude of different types of shots Mm -hmm. that are used in different scenes. I mean, quite a bit of what goes on in this movie is phone conversations. Phone conversations, in-person interviews, and... People reading things. People reading things. (laughs) So immediately the question is, how many different ways can you do that? Or how Mm -hmm. can you have two different phone conversations but have them feel completely different? And I thought that was something that the movie did extremely well and a lot of care was taken into that. Oh, it was very impressive. A lot of the way the movie was was shot really kept it interesting because, again, the subject matter on its own may not have been. And there were a lot of scenes, like you said, that were not very dialogue intensive where the camera had to do a lot of the work. But one of the scenes where I think they're at the Library of Congress and they Mm -hmm. have all of these stacks of slips where they're going through the books and it just slowly pans out and you see not only their stack of papers getting bigger, but just the expanse of the room just kind of speaks to the enormity of the job that they're undertaking. And I I thought that was a really, really well done shot relatively early on to kind of set the tone for where this is all going. Kind of like a concentric, concentric circles and almost maze like looks to it as they pan out. I, lo- I love that shot. The Library of Congress is an incredibly beautiful building. And so it's such a, it gives you very much a needle in a haystack feel right out, you know, where you're like, oh, look, they're making progress. And then as it zooms out and zooms out and zooms out, you're like, oh, this is going to take a really long time. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know, you just kind of lose the momentum and you start to realize the enormity of what they're, of what they're attempting to do. Um, one of my favorite scenes is the the scene where Robert Redford is sitting at his desk and he has a phone call where he tries to call the guy in Minnesota because a check that he had turned in ends up going to a bank in Mexico that ends up in the hands of one of the burglars. And so he's he has a phone call where he talks to the the guy in Minnesota, gets off the phone, ends up talking to this other guy, gets interrupted because the first guy calls back and he switches back and you know kind of has this this back and forth. And that is all one shot. The entire thing. And it does kind of start a little bit far out and then kind of like zooms in on him while he's doing it. And the whole thing, I mean, it's, I don't know, it's several minutes. Yeah, it's like six minutes long. Yeah. I mean, that was one that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's one that really stuck with me too. And so another thing that I noticed is that at the beginning of that shot, you you know, it's pulled out, right? Mm -hmm. And on the left-hand side of the screen, you see the rest of the newsroom reacting to Nixon's renomination. But on the right-hand side, much, much closer. So that's in the background. But much, much closer, you see Robert Redford still. And it's going to pull pan in on him. But they're both in focus. Mm-hmm. So They did a split lens something or other. Yeah, I don't a, know. I don't have I the right terminology it for it. It's called like a split diopter. There it's you not go. something that yes. I had really noticed. I guess a lot of other movies, I had not noticed it before. But it was really fascinating. It's like split down the middle of the screen. You can see how like on one side, the background is in focus. And the other side, the foreground is in focus. Yeah. It's, it's just this. Yeah, and they did it again at the end when it's when it's um, the um, inauguration on the TV. Oh, yes. That's in the very, yeah. very, very sharp foreground, like right in the foreground. And then you have both Woodward and Bernstein at their typewriters just furiously typing away. Like, it doesn't matter. We realize he's been elected. We're going to keep doing what we're doing with the idea that obviously it goes on for another, what, year? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. So, but uh, yeah, that, that scene. Taylor, were there any other shots that in particular you enjoyed? I enjoyed the uh, way the way that they would throughout the movie show Woodward and Bernstein's headlines slowly moving from the inside page <laughs> yeah. to the bottom of the next page, <laughs> the middle of the front page to the headline. I thought that was a both a good way to show that time is actually passing and to show that uh, you know the story has gained more importance. That even though 
all these other events are going on, this story is now warranting being up there with, you know, the nomination of the vice presidential candidates or um, actions taken in Vietnam. Uh, I thought that was a pretty nifty device to show the importance of their reporting. Yeah, I liked that too. I also really liked, I I'm, I already told this to the guys before we started shooting, but I'm going to nerd out for one more second and say that um, the recreation of the newsroom, that they put a great deal of effort into the accuracy of the Washington Post um, office and that the guy who's, I, I couldn't Google it, but I can't remember. The guy who did the set design um, had a background in stage uh, set design. And so the newsroom was actually done in kind of forced perspective where uh, they actually bought the same desks that they sell there that they had in the post. So they bought the exact same desks and then they shaved them down in size as they went back in the scene kind of away. Um, and then with the extras that fill the newsroom, they arranged them by height and put the shorter ones back to give the newsroom a depth of the like the real depth of the post office without actually having to build oh, wow. the entire depth. Yeah. Impressive attention to uh, to detail to get the shot. Yeah. Yeah. I, that reminds me of when we watched The Apartment. Because they did the same sort of thing, except much more exaggerated in the apartment, I think. Yeah, no, and and that's what it reminded me of. Yeah, that's... That's fascinating. Yeah, it was huge. I mean, because if you think, I mean, that the office looked really big, and I really appreciated that, like, Woodward and Bernstein, like, their desks are near-ish each other, but they're not, like, right by each other. There's actually, like, a very annoying pillar kind of between Mm -hmm. them that you see them kind of, like, lean around when they're talking to each other, sometimes shouting from one of their typewriters to the other. I don't know. I just, it gave it a lot of depth. It gave that that walking around the newsroom feel. I definitely think it it gave you um, the Aaron Sorkin... um, Tommy, what's his name? Tommy Shalami. Yes, Tommy Shalami. Yes, the walking around the newsroom while talking feel. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like it, it really kind of set that that action sequence. Like you said, Charlie, keeping things that aren't that exciting uh, very, feel very exciting. I'd say as long as we're talking about the cinematography, though, I love that it technically. I know we said it opens with the burglary, but technically, both the movie opens and ends with text on a typewriter, like going onto the page. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, just sharpen in your face. So. The other cool thing about the beginning and ending of the movie in those shots was the sound design in this movie is crazy. The first scene where they're showing like the AP wire of the announcement of the Watergate burglary, you hear it's supposed to sound like typing or like an exaggerated sort of typing. But at certain times they use like gunshots or mixtures of gunshots for those sounds and i think at the end they used like 21 gun salute instead of actually using typing sounds Hmm. but typing is a sound that's throughout the entire movie and almost every office scene there's typing going on yes definitely kind of gives us sort of like this other feeling of progression too things are unraveling or things are happening or a story is developing so you always hear that constant like forward momentum happening absolutely yeah it's almost kind of like a train on train tracks kind of yes yes i had thought of it that way but and the music doesn't kick in for a very long time and even then it's only in a few scenes so there isn't much of a musical score to this movie either but they used it very effectively oh yeah like i remember it i remember the music at the very end of the film and even over the credits they let the credits roll for 30 seconds at least before the score starts up again too yeah just nice and silent yeah it's nice that they had the restraint to do that. Like they use it very effectively. I, I did appreciate the last time he met with Deep Throat and he leaves the parking garage and is now actually a little scared. Right. Because like Deep Throat's actually told him, you know, you guys are in danger. Like you're all in danger. And so when he leaves and you can tell he's nervous and so using that sound as as well to um where he's he's walking and his pace quickens and then he goes to a flat out run and then he whips around and so it's actually even like the sound in combination of the camera angles because you're tight on his face and then when it whips around there's nothing <laughs> and mm-hmm. but um but yeah even the, just that is that you know a little scrape behind you was that was that just was that was that your feet scuffling was that someone coming up behind you and just that definitely gave you a nice little feeling of anxiety but I think it didn't like that part didn't even really need much of a score it just needed I don't know. Like you could fill in, <laughs> like what you, you would just be hearing your heartbeat, you know. Um, what did you all think of the ending of the film? Again, it's that shot we described of them Nixon in the foreground on the television, and then them both in the background at separate desks typing, just that typing constant, away. Yeah, sound of typing going for the entire scene. Um, 
so it's not it doesn't end with his regna- resignation because the book didn't end with his resignation but so the film actually was made after that happened so they could have added that to the film and they talked about it but decided not to so how do you feel about that that we're left with them typing rather than any sort of distinct closure as far as this investigation has gone i i think they kind of did mm-hmm. um I, because like they they stopped the scenes with the actors they stopped the scenes with woodward and bernstein but then when they the final scenes with the typewriter just the the, the page and showing um like conviction after conviction of all the players we've been talking about the entire time um and then leading up to nixon's resignation because one of those Yes. Says that. So, yes. you know what I'm saying? They don't show it and You're they right. don't show them like kind of their reaction to that or anything. You don't get anything with the characters in the film, but you get to see that kind of like this furious work, this they they definitely achieved something because they they got, you know, they were able to go to go up high enough to make the front page news and all of that, but that they're not going to quit and that it, you know, it goes everywhere. That now they have even more to investigate and more to accomplish and the typewriter, I think, just kind of shows that they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I felt good about it. I liked it. I really liked the ending as well. Um, I think the the overlay of the you know the typewriter over Nixon's being inaugurated for his second term, I believe that's what it is. Yes, um, is really well done because it just kind of shows that you know, as we said before, they they weren't going to be deterred by the fact that he was reelected. That the work continues. That you know, they were going to pursue this as far as it goes to whatever end it could. And in kind of a cliche way, it just goes to show, you know, the work of the free press is never over. So I really liked the ending. Uh, I thought it was well done. It wasn't heavy handed. It wasn't cliche. It was just, you know, here's the facts. This is what this movie is about. Do you know what it kind of reminded me of is um, so you have him taking the oath of the Oval Office at the same time that they are, you know, furiously typing away. So specifically the wording of the oath, right? You know, to to I don't know, uphold <laughs> the, the office of the president the you know, to fill, yeah. yeah. The office Defend. of the, the, the yeah, and it very much reminded me of uh one of the later scenes in the first Godfather movie, the baptism scene where they have him renouncing oh, Satan yeah. while while the heads of the five families are being murdered and that that juxtaposition of like you know they're furiously typing to uncover like this guy is not holding up mm-hmm. <laughs> the oaths of the presidency um while he's while he's saying the words um i just i liked that juxtaposition and that's immediately what it reminded me of a good reference i wouldn't have thought of that until you said that but it's it's really good the first couple of times i watched this movie i was always kind of i was always shocked by the ending that it was all of this lead up and then all of a sudden it was avalanche at the end of Mm. those last few announcements of things that had happened Mm -hmm. right that maybe that's what it felt like in the moment that it was just this sort of like slow build up and all of a sudden like the whole house of cards fell down yeah Uh, that's kind of the impression that i got from it but now listening to more what you both are saying too is like oh yeah i didn't really pick up on those things either That's, that's a really good point so i think there's a lot of different things going on and i think it was a really great choice for an ending like something that actually leaves you I think if we got in a more traditional ending where they kept reporting and then, you know, it's all we see the up. same sort of progression and then eventually Nixon resigns, I think that I, it left it you felt, it, at least to me, it felt like it left you wanting more. Yeah. Um, mm. When I got done with it, it's like, I want to read more about this right now, yeah. even though I've read a ton about <laughs> this particular era of history before. I was like, oh, yeah, you know what? I want to make sure I'm keeping everybody straight in my head. I'm going to go back and reread, you know, whatever, just to kind of I think it prompts you as the viewer to want to participate at some level. When a movie makes you like think and want to keep thinking about it. And this is one that did. So I feel like that's a, a good ending. So I know we usually don't talk much about politics on this show. So nope. <laughs> warning to anyone out there, if you uh, don't want to hear about uh, current events or whatever, you can turn off the podcast at this point and skip forward <laughs> a few minutes. But I felt like today of all days, we really needed to talk about how this movie is really reflecting what's going on right now to a very scary extent. Yeah. Like so much, I mean, even a couple of days ago watching this movie, like picking up on some of the parallels was pretty shocking. And then again, those things I talked about with Paul Manafort, Michael Cohen that happened earlier today, it's those are all the current president's men 
right? That's the first couple of them, right? His associates. So what? It's just the same sort of thing going on right now. Like, what are the similarities, differences? I mean, what? How are you well, I mean, two feeling? <laughs> I just say it's funny because literally one of the uh, one of the big players at the beginning of the movie is, uh, is Colson, right? Who was Nixon's personal attorney and like fixer, you know, the second most powerful man in America. And what did we find out today? We found out that the current president's uh, fixer and personal attorney uh, was indicted and convicted on, was it five charges involving uh, tax evasion and bank fraud and personal income? That's insane. Yeah. Like it's how relevant this is. It's just, it's bizarre, you know, and I don't know. I, I hope someday that there's a uh, you know a modern Woodward and Bernstein that can unravel all the details of this. But then again, this current administration is almost more inept than the Nixon administration because they're just tweeting about the corruption every day. It's it's all there <laughs> to see, and yet it's still happening and still news. And it's uh, I feel I baffling. feel like is that whenever I watch things that are you know watch a film or read a book about a historical event and you obviously are watching it with the perfect hindsight of knowing everything that comes out that you're watching and you're like how did people not know how did people not see that this is horrible or whatever <laughs> and so being in the in political environment that we're in now and seeing like you said how much of this is on the surface how much of this corruption is like you know is relatively relatively visible um and how many people don't care and i think even at the in the movie they even there's a point in time when he said you know we're only so far away from the election and only what was it like 20 or 30 percent of people have ever even heard the word watergate there's some point ben bradley says that and and I think it gave me a, a better sense for that climate at that time. Like, yeah, you have to keep working because it takes a long time from the first moment that news, especially unsavory news, <laughs> is first put out there to how long it takes to sweep through to how long it's uh, how many different times it has to be corroborated before it's believed to to to, you know, whatever. And it, it can take a really long time. And so being in that environment now and going, OK, how long? How long right. does it take? Because, you know, it might not ever even happen because plenty of people are willing to be like, yeah, I don't care. Yeah, it's the the parallels are all there. But the question is, are we in a different environment now where things are going to turn out differently? I mean, but I also had a little bit of hope because because of watching this movie and looking back then and seeing that like, yeah, they had no idea. Mm-hmm. Right. They had like they knew that there was something going on and they knew that people should be punished for it. But they didn't know if it was ever going to happen. Yeah. And that's kind of in the situation we're in right now, too. That is it. Is it's it like, wrong for me to say that out. I felt a little bit better that it's been this bad before? Yeah, <laughs> and it got better. At, you know, better and worse. But yeah. I mean, like you know, it wasn't just bad and then stayed there. Yeah. Um, and that the level of involvement of the intelligence community. So the intelligence community was essentially hijacked, right, by the by the Nixon administration right. that you had the mm-hmm. FBI and the CIA and the IRS and whatever all these things being used and I don't know, I mean, I'm sure there's I'm sure there's there's shadiness going down, but at least at present there's generally a divide between the intelligence community actually, and true. the administration. That's, that's a very yeah. stark difference. <laughs> Yeah, one of the biggest problems is the administration doesn't listen to the intelligence community. Exactly. But it was it was just one of those things that while I was watching it, I'm like, well, it's not quite as bad as as as, as that. <laughs> <laughs> it could be worse. It could, it could, it could be. <laughs> like it made me feel a little a little bit better. But yeah, is this where things start to roll downhill really fast or not? I don't know. And it's 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 one of those things that's kind of it's kind of fascinating because when you've looked at the history of impeachment, it's not usually for what you want it to be for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's the technicality that usually bites you in the ass. And so that's what I'm looking at is that um, the Nixon wasn't impeached because of any of the horrible things he did. <laughs> he was impeached because of the cover-up of the horrible right. things he did and the fact that that could, that could actually be pinpointed, that right. you ended up with tapes that actually indicated that, yeah, you were aware of things and actually but ordered some things that you shouldn't. That's you know. like the biggest parallel right now, though. Yes. That's exactly what's happening right now. Yeah. And so that's what I'm saying is yeah. that you're, you've got to wait for that. Yeah. You've got to wait for something that is 
if you were writing a movie, like just a screenplay from scratch or whatever, that you wouldn't necessarily have everything hinge on this one stupid thing. But in real life, it turns out most of the time it hinges on one <laughs> stupid mm-hmm. thing. Um, you know, same thing with when when Clinton, you know, when articles of impeachment were being coming up, whatever. It wasn't for the stupid thing, you know, whatever mm-hmm. that you did. Yeah. It was because you lied about it on the stand, you know, like, and it's just those little moments, those tiny little things that... You kind of got to wait for. And so, like you said, I mean, we've gotten competency on our side. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you just got to wait. Yeah. And hope that uh, people care enough to demand action. And that's the part that did. Which I think is the issue that we're dealing with right now. And that's the part that did make me uncomfortable is that if you look at in for the Watergate situation and everything and unfolded afterwards is by the time you got to Nixon's resignation, he had no friends left in the House or the Senate. There wasn't going to be anybody that could stop this. It was going to happen. But that was but that was pretty close towards the end, though, too. Right. I mean, there was a while where he had enough support where things weren't going to happen, but it was very like devastating. It was this wasn't even addressed in the movie, the the tapes that he had recorded in his office were the things that came out that people were actually starting to listen to and realizing, okay, we're past the point where we can do this anymore. So yeah. the question is, will we get, is there a way to get to that point now? And that's what and worries it seems, me is that right, it does seem harder. Tapes and video do not have the impact they used to. Yeah. People, well, people first of all are skeptical of these things because you can mess with them. Yeah. And it's true, you can. Mm-hmm. You can mess with audio, you can mess with video. And we've also, you know, at, at the time during the Watergate scandal, you didn't have one network that was privately run that's entire goal was to serve the propaganda aims of uh, one political party, which is one of the things that's causing the most concern currently is we have an entire cable news network dedicated to promoting the aims of the current administration. And they don't even necessarily deny that he has done things wrong as much as they just don't talk about it. Or they play the what about game or, oh, well, what about this that some Democrat 20 years ago did, you know? And so we've reached an era where we have access to all this information, but people either refuse to or choose not to believe it because it doesn't fit with their personal narrative or their personal beliefs. And I think that's the most troubling part because, you know, 40, 50 years ago, If there were tapes of Nixon in the White House saying, yeah, let's bug Watergate, let's get some dirt on the Democrats, people are going to believe that, oh, that's true, that actually happened. But, I mean, tapes of the president saying terrible things, and it doesn't seem to matter anymore, because people either don't care, or they don't believe that it's true for whatever reason. Yeah, it's tough times. (laughs) It is. I mean, public public opinion en masse does affect (laughs) change. Mm Mm-hmm. But if you don't get that, if you can't harness that, if it's if it's not a strong enough force because people dismiss or don't care. Well, the other question, too, is that it's enough people standing up. There's a certain percentage of people, I think, who might be hard to sway. But if enough of the people who aren't within that percentage mm-hmm. stand up, that might be enough. It just might be motivating. Yeah. You know, not the country at large. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Everyone. Oh. Yeah. Ugh. I'll get it in now. Go vote November. <laughs> if you're upset, register, vote. Yeah. It's the only way we're going to change things. That's true. Anything. <laughs> I, I felt like this movie, it made me feel better. It really did. It netted, for a while. It netted positive. It netted positive. I will say that. It's conversation on my survey made me feel better because I'm like, oh, because <laughs> now we're talking about the ways in which it's different, right? The ways in which it was the same make me feel better, and the ways in which it's different make me feel worse yeah i understand understand well movies are supposed to help you escape so maybe i'll just watch it again that's true (laughs) (laughs) uh so taylor what did you think of the movie overall did you did you enjoy it oh yeah i loved it it was great like i said um i think it's i think it's in probably my top 10 now I, i think it was really well done from a technical standpoint i think the story was great like the acting was great um yeah i loved it i'll be telling anyone that hasn't seen it to watch it now that I have actually watched it. I obviously, I love this movie. I've seen it a few times, but I really did enjoy watching it again this time around. Um, I think really, really paying attention for content this time around, I did throw subtitles on um, 
which I think is distracting on a first viewing, but because I've seen it before, I did throw it on so I could pay a little bit more attention to some things that are occasionally like kind of mumbled um, or, or, or like that. I just wanted to make sure I was I was really seeing everything. And it was a different viewing in today's political climate and after having seen The Post. Like all of those things contributed to just like I really enjoyed it this time around. We just kind of felt a little energized immediately after after it was over. As I said, it made me feel... A little bit better, at least at the time. I'm sorry we're, <laughs> it's we're pos- rehearsing your well, buzz, Charlie. Other, I'm no, so this sorry. Is the other thing that, you know, I think even Redford said was that he wanted to make the movie somewhat positive. And it is. Like, you don't think about it at the time. You're like, oh, they're investigating this really, these shady dealings and, you know. Abuse this, of this power. corruption, yeah. <laughs> but really, it's a movie about the press succeeding and doing what they're supposed to do. And yeah. these two people mm-hmm. are never going to give up. Right. You see them at the end of the movie and they're still typing. Yeah. And that feels good. <laughs> it does. It definitely um, does. But yeah, at this time I was able to concentrate a little bit more on like, oh, you know, how are they making this interesting? Because I'll admit, even this time watching it, I I couldn't keep track of half the names because I'm not like I'm not a Watergate <laughs> historian. I don't know tons about it beyond this movie and reading a little bit. But um, so like, was it Ehrlichman? Ehrlichman and Haldeman. Haldeman. E. Howard Hunt. Um Stan, no, Stan, 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 uh, and uh, uh, Colson, Colson, Mitchell, Mitchell. <laughs> These are just names. <laughs> These are just names to me. <laughs> but he's going from one name to the next name, and it's just still super compelling, right? Like they managed to do it in a way that if you can't quite follow it, because I mean, how many people were indicted? There was like almost seventy people indicted over the course of this. So um, I think it, it was a little did... bit depressing at the end to look at actual time served versus oh and the yeah. most amount of time served by anybody was four years yeah four four and a half something like that most people it was less than two but i mean i suppose the you know the individual acts that these people committed weren't in and of themselves like these huge crimes right collectively <laughs> yes but it's so i was the like thoughts behind it <laughs> yeah i don't know it just it was it was upset it like irritated me and then i decided i had to let it go <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, there's something I knew about this that happened, you know, 40 years ago. Fine. I'll let it go. So, Taylor, uh, you've watched something we thought you should watch. Now's your opportunity to tell the world something you think they should watch. Um, I have a hard time not recommending movies that I feel like everyone has probably already seen. Or, well, I guess, should have seen. <laughs> well, that's fine. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I mean, if this show tells you anything, it's that <laughs> some people will not have seen whatever movie you recommend. You will approve um, someone's life. Go, I was going to go with my standby and say Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, because I think that may be my favorite movie of all time. But since we did a Redford movie today, I'm going to go with the Redford movie that maybe not many people know too much about. It's not really obscure. It's just not one of his best ones, but I personally enjoy it. It's called Spy Game. It's uh, Oh, I love that Brad movie. Pitt, yeah. Actually. Oh, great. You have seen it. Yeah. Um, I really enjoy that movie. I feel like a lot of people, for some reason, haven't seen it. Um, yeah, it's a fun you know, movie. Uh, yeah, it's like a it's a fun spy movie. I don't know. I really enjoy it, and it's uh, you know continue the Redford trend, I guess. But I uh, I recommend yeah. it's Red- watch if you haven't seen it. It's Redford month. Yeah, or month and a half or whatever. Sure. So this week I knew instantly what I was going to recommend. Oh, you I did. I have to recommend the 1999 film Dick. Nice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which is it, I watched it earlier this year. It really holds up very well. I think it's still hilarious. It's got Kirsten Dunst. It's got the amazing Michelle Williams that's got uh, Will Ferrell's actually in it too. So really? Bruce McCullough and Will that. Ferrell play Woodward and Bernstein and they have a very interesting take <laughs> take on it. So the idea behind this movie is that it's sort of like a spoof of like all the president's men, but like basically the whole Watergate scandal and a couple of uh, teenage girls are invited to the White House and find out some secrets and have to be kept silent by the president <laughs> played by Dan Hedaya. And it's that movie will make you feel good too. I think, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> as it were. Yeah, without the aftertaste of having to think about real politics. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, to, to that to that point, uh, my recommendation is I'm going to go with what I mentioned earlier. I'm actually going to recommend the TV series, The West Wing, which I know a lot of people watched. But uh, Aaron Sorkin and um, Aaron Sorkin, Tommy Shlami, um, it is, I don't know, a progressive's dream of what it could possibly be. It's very <laughs> unrealistic. Um, but it's light and it's fun and, and it's it's hopeful. And I will say that it is definitely what I watched for the first 
five, six months of this particular presidency to uh, make myself feel better. <laughs> Same. I'm like, oh, Jed Bartlett, I miss you. Oh <laughs> uh, Well, Taylor, thank you very much for being on the show. It was a pleasure to get to see this movie again. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, uh, I enjoyed watching this and talking about it. And everyone out there listening, make sure to check out cinematicrespect.com. And you can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd, of course. And another plug, a friend of the show, Tommy Oler, has a show called Let's Write an Episode, which everyone should go and check out, actually. So, Jessica, you know what they do in this this show? Hmm. (laughs) The first episode of a two-episode series is him sitting down and writing an episode of a television show that already exists, for instance, (laughs) Saved by the Bell, (laughs) with some other writers. And then the second episode is them performing that in front of a live studio audience. <laughs> like 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 acting it or just doing like a read through? Uh it's hard to say. I think it's like a read through, but I think there's props involved nice. <laughs> in action. Oh definitely. It sounds like they're they're really putting in the effort. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, there was a good I listened to a Save by the Bell episode where it starts out with Screech dying <laughs> and then them being at his funeral. <laughs> It's pretty good. And the most recent episode is a Xeno Warrior Princess episode. So I'm right, very then. much looking forward to listening to that one. Wow. That sounds like a lot of effort. Uh, it's, it's a lot a of effort. It's commitment. a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say a small little aside about Hal Holbrook. He also has a little special place in my heart uh, for a recurring role, a minor recurring role he had in the West Wing when that was on television. (laughs) Um, And also speaking of of Sorkin, like you just said. Um, But yeah, he was just... Who is he in the West Wing? He has this minor role as um, like a Republican. I don't know if he's a House member or if he's... No, no, no. He's in the cabinet, I think. But anyways, he's like a military expert on whatever. And so he has a couple different, um, I don't know, three, four episodes or whatever. He's like this minor character. But he's a adorable and i love him whenever he's whenever he's on and i love the west wing i'm disappointed that i couldn't picture that yeah he's the president finds him super annoying like and so all the scenes are great because he's just ruffling his feathers